Hello, Jesse. I'm Jennifer Nassour, and I am a Republican. Well, hello there, Jen. I'm Jesse Mermel, and I am a Democrat. And we are joining the Codcast family for what we think of as disagreeing agreeably. A conversation between us two women of different parties, plus some outside experts and pundits about Massachusetts policy and politics. So Jen and I have had the chance to get to know each other over the past several years of sparring uh, as political analysts for various shows around town. And despite all of our disagreeing, we have discovered that we actually like each other as people. <laughs> Surprise. Imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> I think Jesse is pretty much wrong about everything. Uh, yeah, and I feel the same way about you. Hi. <laughs> Well, that's politically, though, right? Uh, absolutely. absolutely. We agree on dogs. <laughs> we agree on dogs. And we, um, you know, just as a Republican and a Democrat over here, we can go a few rounds. And then, you know, we talk about the latest news in our lives. We talk about each other's puppies. We talk about <laughs> my kids, my crazy kids. And so this is an experiment in bringing um, that same vibe to a larger hashtag MA poly conversation. We'll talk amongst ourselves but also with smart, diverse people from around the state to see if in this political climate, this crazy political climate of 2018. <laughs> crazy is the nicest way you could describe it. <laughs> I'm trying to be kind on our first show, Jesse. <laughs> if we can just disagree agreeably. So we do want to be clear about one thing. Disagreeing agreeably does not mean that the gloves won't come off. We won't pull punches when we see things differently, and we don't expect anybody else to. Um, but when we aren't sitting in front of microphones, we're still going to be organizing and marching, resisting, or whatever other form of civic engagement blows our hair back. In this day and age, disagreeing agreeably, you know, isn't always possible or appropriate. Looking at you, Nazis and racists. But in this space, we're going to go battle it out and hopefully still stay friends. And at least that's the plan that we have for now. <laughs> Check back in with us. <laughs> we'll see in a few months if we're still speaking. You know, we still have the election that's coming. <laughs> but we're looking forward to hosting all sorts of folks at this podcast um, as it unfolds. But for our very first episode, we wanted to keep it just the two of us. Aww. <laughs> So sweet. Yeah, just our little family, our little weird family <laughs> over here. <laughs> I've just come off of working on um, Beth Lindstrom's Senate bid, and Jesse was involved in Ayanna Presley's bid for Congress, a successful bid for mm -hmm. um, the seat. And with the primary, you know, just about a week or so away from here, we're just looking in the rearview mirror at those two races and what the outcomes mean for the future of politics in Massachusetts and nationally, and seems like a good place to start. All right. So, Jen, why don't I dive right in? You were Beth Lindstrom's finance director in the Republican primary for the U.S. Senate, and that maybe didn't go exactly the way you were I was the planning. finance chair. I was You're just finance overseeing chair. Yes, yes. it all. Um, and, no, you know, sadly... As far as I'm concerned, Beth was the best candidate out there for U.S. Senate on the Republican side and, and even against Warren and, and beating Warren. Um, small business owner and a mom and just a fabulous woman who had experience both inside and outside of government. And so when I decided to jump on Beth's campaign. She's a good friend of mine. We work through the Scott Brown race together. We have a lot of history together of being in kind of intense moments. And 
I wanted to help her out as much as possible. And I mean, we did, we, I think we did great. We, our fundraising numbers were amazing. We beat the other guys a couple of quarters in a row. Um, you know, and at the end of the day, primaries are weird. Yeah. Primaries bring out people on the fringes and you, especially in a crowded primary where votes are being split and there was someone running against the governor who was a not even social conservative, way off the Richter scale to the right. Um, and, you know, they were able to bring out more people than than we were. And unfortunately, you know, 19 percent turnout doesn't help a more moderate candidate. Yep. It definitely favors the, the fringes. So with a few days uh, of time to think about it, is that what you really think happened? Is it the, is it the turnout on the Republican side, both the, the quantity and the, uh, I'm going to use the word quality, I don't mean that in a anyone's better than other way, but just the, the type of voter who was coming out, um, is that what you think was your ultimate hurdle? Absolutely. I think what happened was, you know, I mean, I, the moderates in Massachusetts, the unenrolled voters, right? So remember, 55% of our electorate are unenrolled voters. And in a general election, it's great for both parties that, you know, are Democrats and Republicans that are kind of in the middle of the road of their parties to the middle of the road politically. Um, that 55% does us all well in a general. In a primary, though, especially on the Republican side, we only have 10.6% of the voters that are registered Republicans. But what that means is that those Republicans They're are diehards. Diehard yeah. Republicans. They're not afraid to go out on a limb and to register as a Republican, whereas a lot of the I call them closet Republicans, registers <laughs> unenrolled, and they'll go vote in a primary. Hey, listen, I live in Brookline, and I had a neighbor walking down the street this morning and a woman for Charlie, women for Charlie t-shirt, I almost drove off the road. <laughs> they actually exist in Brookline. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> and, and so that's the thing. Like, you know, you'll see Democrats come out and vote for Baker. You'll see, you know, moderates come out, unenrolled come out. In a primary, though, those people take it for granted. And, you know, I don't understand why people don't take their their privilege to vote seriously in primaries and in general elections. But for some reason, they let it go. Unfortunately, what happens is it takes a hit on democracy. And so small d democracy ends up falling behind because the only people who are out there voting, at least on the Republican side, were the ones that were pulled out by the uber social conservative end and they came out and you can see jeff deal won um mcmahon won for sec for um attorney general and then you had that showing by scott lively yeah, almost a hundred thousand votes who i mean if people actually knew this man's views they wouldn't vote for him for I, dog catcher. i would hope you, I would, you hope. would hope. Yeah. And so I, that's really what happened. I think we were our campaign was really just a victim of um, all those people coming out. So, listen, the last thing I want to do is drive up Republican turnout. Right? <laughs> that is not on my to do list in life. But, you know, what we've seen from Democrats clearly here in Massachusetts in the 7th, but also around the country is getting away from that assumption of we're only going after good voters. We're only going after those folks who have showed up at the polls the past two or three municipal elections or primary elections, and we're ignoring everybody else. And the candidates who have turned that model on its head have started to succeed. I mean, is there a place in GOP primaries in Massachusetts to find those more moderate voters and actually get them to the polls? Or does it feel like that's just 
too high of a hurdle to clear. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely, I mean, when I was party chair, um, that was one of the things I was looking at is finding those, again, I, you know, I call them the closet Republicans, the ones that... I'll give you, you know, my neighbor's phone number. <laughs> I could use her. Um, <laughs> but those people who really were more aligned with Republicans in Massachusetts. Maybe not aligned with Republicans nationally, but more aligned with... That's a different episode. (laughs) That is the crazy town show. Um, But, I mean, more aligned with the Republicans in Massachusetts. And so I I think that um, we, we should try to get those people, and that's something for the party to really focus on. I don't know if the Mass GOP... I don't know if the state committee, our state committee is totally different composition than the Democratic state committee, right? We only have 80 folks on that committee. Oh, my goodness. Yes. And so we it, have 4,000. Sometimes it feels like. <laughs> no, it's like 300 some odd. But it is. But a, it seems like 4,000. It's a substantive number. Yeah, we don't. And so what happens is, you know, it's a lot closer of a vote in to get things done. And your your masters are much closer to you because there are so few of them. And so I think it's it's hard to to move them to understand that in order to be successful in Massachusetts, you do need to bring out everyone, which we've seen the governor do. He, you know, he's the governor for the Commonwealth, not just for the 10.6 percent of Republicans, which pisses them all off. (laughs) (laughs) So I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't ask you a, a chick question here. So, you know, Beth Lindstrom while I disagree with her on issues, was an incredibly qualified candidate. I mean, her resume easily earned her the right to be taken seriously as a candidate, and yet she came in third. You know, the Republican Party in Massachusetts has had some luck in electing women, particularly Jane Swift and obviously now the lieutenant governor, and not that the Democratic Party has been any great shakes in this uh, realm, but we've we've improved in recent years. Is there any anything in the tea leaves to read about, you know, Beth's showing on last Tuesday about what it means to be a woman running statewide as a Republican in Massachusetts? And I will throw that grenade in your direction and let you do what you want. Thank you so much, Jesse. <laughs> I appreciate the question. Um, you should see the death stares that I'm getting. Uh, yes. I mean, we saw it with Jane Swift, we saw it with Carrie Healy, we now see it with Beth Lindstrom. Um, I do think that there is definitely a more um, misogynistic view on our candidates with the Republican Party. And and you know what, quite honestly, I got it as party chair. I can't tell you how many people would come up to me at state committee meetings and say, who's watching your kids tonight? Stop it. I mean... Not surprised, but frustrating. Uh, ridiculous, right? It was like, you know, I don't remember the last time someone went up to their dad and said, who's watching your kids tonight? Mm-hmm. You know, or any man, right? Like, and but because I had kids and I was a young mom, that was a question. How dare you? How dare you? Ugh, and You're the worst. And still, still, it's, I mean, if I look at my, my Twitter direct messages, it's all about, it's all comments related to me as a woman. Mm-hmm. Not, I mean, people will, you know, I'll get comments about, you shouldn't, you know, you should cover your arms on TV. And I'm like, <laughs> for real? I mean, and these are the things that these also, people are worried about. That's the dumbest <laughs> advice ever because you have amazing arms. Thank you. So you should never cover your arms. <laughs> and so I think that there in our in the party, there is a little bit of that view of a man can do it better than a woman can do it. 
And again, it's 2018, people. And it's the year of the woman. And it's, again, it's the year of the woman. But I mean, what makes her any less qualified? I think she's much more qualified than Jeff Deal to have taken on Elizabeth Warren, to have had that conversation. She's brilliant and talented and she's she's amazing but you know there's a future for Beth Lindstrom I you know I hope that our party starts to wisen up a little bit and and become a little bit more broad-minded like the Democrats have been so let me ask you one last question and then I know you want to put me in the hot seat Um, (laughs) you're like it's what I woke up this morning (laughs) to do so you know, Jeff Deal won this primary. He was the chair of Donald Trump's campaign in Massachusetts. On the gubernatorial side, Scott Lively, as you mentioned, I think had a surprisingly strong showing, um, despite espousing values that make so many of us, you know, it sends chills down our spine. What does that mean? Are we going to see more Trump-style Republicans running in Massachusetts? No. I, I mean, I if 100,000 people are willing to vote for Scott Lively, is that... Is that a green light to some people with those values to throw their hat in the ring here? No, definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) I hope not. And if you plan to, please stay home because you're going to lose. Um, You know, it is Massachusetts. And, you know, whether you agree with the president or not, um, the president is under 30 percent in Massachusetts in approval. And so, you know, at the end of the day, look, like. I was an athlete. I believe in you put the best players on the field and you play to win. And the end of the game is someone wins, someone loses. Not everyone gets to go home with a trophy. <laughs> and so, you know, it's it's not a winning strategy here in Massachusetts. You know, the whole lively thing. I mean, if I was the governor, I would have batted him off as a little flea and said, you know, I'm just doing what I'm doing, which is managing the state and going to run in my general election, and you mean nothing. And the people who voted for Scott Lively, I do not believe, actually agree with Scott Lively. I think that for those people, and I know a lot of them, they're good people, they're hardworking people, and they're people who truly believe in their Republican values, their conservative values. I think they are disappointed that the governor does not agree and walk in lockstep with the president. And that vote for them was a I'm mad at you vote. It was a temper tantrum vote. It wasn't a pro Scott Lively vote. And they do know that we need to have the best people out there running for office, but they were just sending a message to the governor. Yeah, I think for me, the challenge is that they're also sending a message to people in Massachusetts whose rights feel very much threatened, if not already hampered by this Trump administration and looking at nearly 100,000 of their neighbors saying that even if it isn't what they actually meant, it's interpreted, and I don't think necessarily unjustly, as agreeing with the Trump administration because that's what Scott Lively was talking about. And I think it makes a lot of people really nervous about um, the strength of what we sometimes think of too strongly as our safe little bubble here in Massachusetts. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Well, I mean, that's why things like what we're doing. Yes. Make it even more important. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Not to prop ourselves up. Not to prop ourselves up or the show. (laughs) Um, All right. So, Jesse, I'm turning to you. Uh (laughs) Um, Okay, so I live in the 7th. Yes. I couldn't stand Mike Capuano. (laughs) But you're a Republican, so you couldn't vote in the primary. But I'm a Republican, I couldn't vote in the primary. And, you know, Ayanna's politics are, like, totally off, off, (laughs) off, way far off from from mine. However, 
that was a ridiculously amazing, cool race and amazing thing that you did. How? How, what's the secret sauce? What do you think? Oh, my goodness. Well, first of all, I should say I, I have no problem with Mike Capuano. Ayanna Presley is uh, my oldest, dearest, bestest friend here in the city of Boston. We've been friends for longer than I can count uh, in the you know nearly 20 years that I've lived here. Um, and you ask me what the secret sauce is. At the end of the day, it's her. I mean, her campaign deserves a boatload of credit, and we can talk about that more. But it's her. She is talented in a way that no political consultant could ever teach a candidate to be. She communicates and connects with voters and I think sees people in a way that you either do or don't. Like that's a natural thing you have or you don't. And maybe you're in politics employing that talent or you're doing something else, but there isn't a single candidate training program you could go through or, you know, weekend consultant getaway that'll that'll give you that. Um, and she has it. And I don't think um, that in the absence of that talent, in the absence of that sort of raw ability to connect with people, you would have seen the same result. Do you think that it had anything to do with the fact, I, well, uh, God, I don't even know where to start with this. Do you think it had anything to do with the fact that he was there for so long that government is kind of at a standstill and nothing is moving. Do you think it had to do with the fact that she's a woman, a minority? Did it have to do with, um, you know, what What do you think exactly? I mean, because there's more than that, right? Because I, I, just, sure. I just came off of a campaign with an amazing person who connected sure. with everyone. Ayana and being, she wasn't able yeah, to Yeah, Ayanna being talented alone isn't enough. We've all seen plenty of remarkably talented people fall short. Um, I think it was... A whole combination of things. One, she had a super creative hustling staff, mostly millennials, largely women and people of color, who came at this from an entirely different angle. I mean, these were not, for the most part, the usual suspects of the Massachusetts political world. You know, Sarah Groh ran her campaign, and you had uh, Josian Martinez working uh, an intense program around media outlets and communities of color, and Alex Goldstein and his team putting together a, a media strategy uh, that didn't involve any traditional TV English language ad buys, you know, and she still won. They also crushed it in the field. Um, and I think that the fact that she was a woman and a person of color was important. More so, it was her life experience and her, I think, fearlessness in talking about what for years many of us might have seen as weaknesses from a candidate. Oh, my goodness. Don't talk about the fact that you used to have eviction notices on your house growing up. Don't talk about the fact that you experienced sexual right. abuse. Don't talk about the fact that your father was incarcerated. Are you kidding me? Bury that all away and just hope the other side doesn't find it in opposition research. And instead, she put it out there front and center, not in this, hey, guys, there's this thing I have to tell you about, and I just hope you're understanding. Mm. She talked about it in a way that, you know what, this happened to me or happened in my life, and it's actually a strength because it allows me to see what's going on in my community and serve all of you better. And I don't know that we've seen really anyone, particularly any women in Massachusetts politics, take that approach before. Um and particularly in a district where, unfortunately, many people can relate to those experiences, it allowed them to look at her in a way that they could just never look at Mike Capuano, despite the fact that he voted 
you know, what I would consider to be the right way in many things. It was that lived experience and that whole additional level of empathy and relatability um, that was just, it, it made her untouchable. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's so amazing. And, you know, it, we, we, I think as women in, in this, um, in this political climate, we talk about, you know, whether something's a movement or a moment, but, you know, in politics and, I've been in politics for, God, it makes me so old, but over 25 years at this point. Well, you started and, when you were three. Right, exactly. I mean. Exactly. I was still in diapers, <laughs> <laughs> holding campaign signs. Um, but I always believe that your message, right, and your your message, your story, your life experiences create who you are, and that's how people end up wanting to be in your presence. And clearly that's something that she did. And I think along with her, you know, came – that Sanchez loss mm-hmm. and Byron Rushing's loss and Rachel Rollins. I mean, do 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 you see that Ayanna Presley's win drew everyone else along that it, because it's very urban. It's a very urban district and and everything, all the changes that happened were really urban centered. Yeah, I don't want to take away from those candidates and their teams who I know busted their butts to turn out their vote, but there's no way you can look at the overlap and ignore the connections that a lot of candidates with similar profile, that sort of outsider either challenger, challenger or clearly Rachel was running in an open seat, um, sort of not being positioned as the front runner and the obvious heir apparent. Um, there was a whole lot of appetite last Tuesday um, to buck the establishment. And particularly if you look at Rachel, where it was an open seat, you can't place that on longevity of an incumbent service, right? That right. was just looking for change, looking for a different type of face, and by the way, a different type of face who was highly qualified and ran a great campaign and put in a ton of work. Um, so I don't think you can chalk Ayana's win just up to pe- just up to people being fed up with um, same old, same old in Washington and Mike Capuano getting caught up in that. Um, you know, I think back to uh, there was a race, a state rep race in Brookline 20 years ago where an incumbent had been there for one term um, and still got booted out because there was just an appetite for change at that particular mm. moment. Um, so it doesn't always take 20 years to build up that feeling. So now I'm going to turn it to you. So in Massachusetts, we're 55%. I love this statistic, and I use it all the time, <laughs> by the way. So you guys are going to get sick of hearing it. But 55% of the electorate are unenrolled voters. It seems as though in the city of Boston, everything was pulled to the left because, you know, again, primaries pulled to the side. So... Um, what do you think happens statewide, though? Because the rest of the state is not as liberal as the city. So if this is the wave, do other Democrats in Massachusetts think that they need to go all the way to the left, thereby sacrificing kind of the remainder of the, the Commonwealth? Um, you know, Or it, it, do you think that that's actually where the party's going to go? Because it seems as though you guys are going to get pulled more and more to the left, just as the Republicans have gotten pulled more to the right. And, and that 55% has actually increased recently. It was 52%. So clearly more people are seeing them in the middle of the aisle. But what happens when you have the message coming out of this is, if you're liberal, you're going to win. What, what happens statewide with you guys? Um, well, let me look in my crystal ball here. And <laughs> I thought that that's what you did as a side gig. <laughs> yes, many people don't know, but I am a fortune teller on the side. No, that would be amazing, though. Um, 
I don't think it's a it's a left right center thing. I think it's a move toward the people who have felt ignored and unseen and left out of the process thing. Now, in cities, that probably means moving left. For the rest of the state, it might mean something else. But I actually believe it's the same message just delivered in a different way. Right. If you feel left out because of race or gender or what, you know, people have negatively talked about as identity politics, but I think we need to think of that as a positive, not as a negative. I'm not sure that the solutions to that are much different than if you're a white rural voter who feels left behind by poverty. Um, I think a lot of the solutions are actually the same. How we talk about them might need to be differently different. The messengers we use to get those across might be different, but I don't think the core solutions really vary that much. And so in my mind, it's not a, oh wow, we gotta go hard left or oh, you know, be careful not to ignore the center. I think it's a let's go after the people who haven't been participating in the process because they don't feel seen. And when we turn those voters out, I think, sorry, but I think Democrats win. Well, I mean, I think that's, you know, kind of also how the governor got in, right? Because there were uh, the center and the right of center who said, you know what, we had enough of Deval Patrick, sorry. But I, I mean, <laughs> I didn't have enough of him personally, but <laughs> but we don't I was agree clearly with in it. the minority. We're not we're not in a better position. And let's well, give let's except give for it. the many, many ways in which we ranked number one in the nation in a whole host of categories, but we can get into that another time. Education, and now clean we energy, have the most innovation. Popular governor in the nation. <laughs> But but I mean, I think that 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 actually happened on the right, too, you know, and, and, and maybe it is the messenger. But but now more even more broadly focused right in 2018, where nationally there are so many women running Massachusetts, we're super fortunate again, don't agree with their politics. But, you know, all our constitutional officers are majority women. Yeah. We have a lieutenant governor that's a woman. We're doing pretty well here in Massachusetts. That's not the same for the rest of the country. Do you do you think that I that I mean everyone was focused on the seventh nationally too, right? I mean, do you think that she is now a model for women who are running everywhere? And not just women who are running. I have a, a dear, dear friend who has a little girl who, who turns four on Sunday. And last night sent me a video of her four-year-old at the kitchen counter drinking from a juice box, obviously wearing a Wonder Woman shirt. <laughs> and she said, oh, what what happened to Aunt AP the other day? A bunch of us call her AP. And she said, she's going to be a congresswoman. And then her mom asked her, what are you going to do? And she said, I'm going to be a congresswoman too. Ugh. And then with no prompting, she said, when I grow up, I'm going to run. and People are going to vote for me. And I'm going to be a congresswoman. <laughs> And she's four that's years awesome. old. I love it. I mean, I don't care what party you're in. That's just... Doesn't matter. All the feels. All the feels. So, yes, I think Ayana's going to inspire people to run. People who volunteered on her campaign and saw her directly thinking about running for local office or state rep. And just people around the country who've seen her and hopefully who have seen the many, many other women who are running from all parties this year. But then I get so excited about the little girls like my friend's daughter or even my little niece sent Ayana a congratulations video the next morning where she totally mispronounced her name, but who cares? Um, those are the ones that I get excited about. Well, my daughter who wrote Capuano a note uh, through Girl Scouts on um, on 
environmental issues a couple of years ago and then got a letter back from him that said, you know, if it wasn't for those awful Republicans in Congress, then maybe something would change. And her and I had to have a conversation on how clearly his office was not paying attention to um, his office was not paying attention to who the voters were in the household. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And and maybe it's not just like punting it to the bad Republicans, maybe. And it, this was before Trump. This was, you know, while Obama was in the White House and he was blaming the Republicans instead of saying we can work on solutions and I would love to speak to you. And, you know, maybe we can talk to your parents and come in. Right. I said to her, guess what? He's out. There's a woman who's in there. She's, you know, same age group as mommy. And guess what? This world will hopefully, even though I don't agree with her, everything will be addressed very differently than it was previously. So, um, you know, yeah, pro my, tip, my, don't come at kids with criticism when they write you a Girl Scout exactly. letter. Exactly. Free advice. <laughs> and with that, should we wrap this first segment up, Jesse? Yeah. Otherwise, we're going to be here for another three hours. Uh, we can we can talk <laughs> later over rosé. That works for me. That works for me. Well, thank you, everybody, for tuning into our first uh, chat with all of our cackling laughter and interrupting each other. There's more of that to come. And, uh, yeah, we're going to go for that rosé. And, yes, I'm Jennifer Nassour, the former chairman of the Massachusetts Republican Party and currently the COO of Reflect Us. And I'm Jesse Mermel, and I used to be Governor Deval Patrick's communications director, hence my ability to recite random facts and figures about the Patrick administration. And we look forward to chatting with you next time. Bye.